In your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. (laughs) Revelation chapter 16. Beginning in verse 1. Revelation 16, 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels... Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And everything living, Every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, True and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you open your word to us now? Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear We can't do this on our own. We can't understand apart from the Spirit's illumining work in our hearts. And so would you help us and instruct us. Lord, we don't want to just know more. We want your word to change us, to make us more like Christ. So Lord, use your word to accomplish your will as it always does. We know that it will not return void. So we come hopeful and with great anticipation now as we listen to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We've talked quite a bit about the building intensity in the book of Revelation, and Revelation 16 certainly makes that clear, that the burners are getting turned up, pun intended. Our tendency as humans, and this may be a generalization or an overgeneralization, if that's not saying too much, but... We tend to avoid the wrath of God. We don't like talking about the wrath of God. Now, we understand for unbelievers why unbelievers wouldn't want to talk about the wrath of God. I mean, there's the the, the atheist camp who would want to remove the existence of God altogether. That makes sense, right? If If you don't have a God, if you don't have a creator, if you don't have one who is sovereign and holy, then there is no account to give. You can live your life as you want. And there's no fear and shame, or at least that's the intent. Even for someone who believes in a God but doesn't recognize who Christ is and what he has done, there is still the desire to remove any fear, or ultimately it's, it's a need for atonement, because that's what Christ brings to the equation. He atones for our sins. And if I can remove that, then I don't feel so guilty and bad about what I'm thinking, doing, wanting to do, wishing to do with my life. That makes sense to us. For believers, though, and and again, this may be an overgeneralization, but I'm sure we've all seen it, that 
there are some believers who find the wrath of God something that is not just uncomfortable but embarrassing to talk about. As if the love of God is the only attribute that people would really want to hear about. And that, of course, is problematic because we cannot understand the love of God apart from his wrath. And I hope that we will see that today if we haven't already seen it. We know God is holy. We know that he is altogether set apart. There is none like him. He is pure. And because of that, anyone who transgresses his perfect standard must be held to account. But scripture also teaches us that God is love. John 14.6 says that specifically, but of course all of scripture makes it clear that God is love. And his love is a holy love. I don't do this much, but imagine with me, if you will, that someone comes to your door this afternoon and knocks on your door. And you open it, and there stands a person with papers in their hand, and they are flanked by some armed guards, and they instruct you that you have to leave your residence, that you have to leave immediately without taking any of your possessions, your property, you can walk out of the house with the clothes on your back and your wallet or your purse. Of course, you protest and argue, but he ensures you that he has the power to enforce this edict. And you protest further, and the guards place their hands on their weapons. And finally, you find yourself standing out on the sidewalk in front of your house, not knowing what has just happened. And as you walk away, you pull out your phone, only to discover that you can't even unlock it. It's become a brick. It's unusable. And so you walk and walk and walk, and you finally come to a store. You decide to buy some water to find that your credit cards and debit cards don't work. And so you think your only hope now is to go to a friend's house, and so you walk some more, and you finally end up at a friend's house and crash there for a few days, only to discover that everything that you own, everything that you've ever had access to, everything is gone. Not only are your possessions gone, but now your voice is gone. It's as if you haven't even existed. You have no power, you have no possessions, and you have no voice. Now, if something like that happened, as outlandish as it may sound, what is it that you and I would want in that moment? What any of us would want is justice. We would want what has wrongly been taken from us to be restored. We would want what has been turned upside down to be righted, to be repaired, to be fixed. We would want for those who have taken everything away from us to have it removed from their power by someone with a greater power. And if we're honest, we would probably want some kind of reciprocity. We would probably also want to make sure that it never happens to us again and hopefully It doesn't happen to anyone else again. Well, in chapter 16 of Revelation, we read the angel of God's judgment, uh, or the angel speak, rather, of God's judgment, that it is is what they deserve, verse 6. That's what he says about it. You see, the love of God is not only displayed in his mercy when it is poured out upon Christ for us who have sinned, The love of God is also displayed when his just wrath falls on those who have rebelled against him, who have persecuted Christ's people, and who have shed their blood. 
The wrath of God is an awful thing. Hebrews 10.31 tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so when we see God's wrath, when we understand God's wrath, at least two things need to stand out. One is that He will restore. He will vindicate His people. He will right everything that has been wronged, everything that has been turned upside down. He will turn it right side up. He will restore all that has been lost or stolen. And that is a great hope of ours. But the other thing that we need to see in God's wrath is that it demonstrates that the mercy that has been shown to us in Christ's death is immeasurable. It is beyond our comprehension. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The wrath of God not only demonstrates God's holiness, the wrath of God demonstrates God's love. As we look at the four bowls, well, we're looking at seven, but we're only looking at four today. It's just, it's, it was too much. Uh, I wanted to do it all together. It would make sense. It would be able to maybe uh, understand it a little bit better if we put them all together, but it's just too much. So we're looking at the first four. And there's a number of ways to divide this. I've chosen the first four because, as we've seen, the, the, the seals and the trumpets follow the same pattern. And I've told you the bowls are going to follow the same pattern. We're going to see that. They tell the same story but from different angles. These are the, this is the story of the last days, the days in which we were in between the ascension of Christ and His return. So what we would expect then in the retelling of the stories would be correlation. There would be some similarities. We're going to see that. We would also expect there to be some differences because the story is being told from different angles or different perspectives. So we're going to see that as well. And this, this progression or growing intensity that we've seen already, and we will see more. Now, this growing intensity centers around the fact that these temporal judgments of God that have occurred and are occurring and will occur are designed to serve as warnings. A lot of times we want to figure out what people are being judged for. I don't think we need to go there. When we see natural disasters, when we see disease, to try and figure out who did what or why this happened to that person, that's not our place. We don't know. God hasn't revealed it to us, so don't even go there. What we do know is that God's judgment is being revealed. And so it serves as a warning. When we do experience disaster, when the hurricane comes through, it strikes God's people and unbelievers just the same. And while it is not condemnation, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it is used for our sanctification. God's able to do that. He's big enough, He's all-powerful enough to use something that is both a judgment and a warning of a greater judgment to come and a use for our sanctification and growth. So these judgments then that we see in history, in our own day, and in the days to come serve as a warning. And yet they serve as a warning that there is a final judgment that is to come. A judgment when mercy will be expired. When there will not be time to repent any longer. And after that, of course, is eternal judgment from which no one escapes except those who have fallen on the mercy of Christ. Another thing that we've seen with uh, the, the seals and the trumpets, and now we're going to see with the bowls, there's many allusions and references back to Old Testament prophecies and passages in, uh, in, in the Old Testament in Scripture. 
And what we've seen or will see here with the bowls as we begin to see last week in the introduction is, is it's the, uh, the Exodus story that really is central here. Uh, we, we touched on it a little bit last week. We'll see more of it today, the plagues and so forth with the Exodus story. Now, I, I hesitate to, to, to mention this, but I do think it could be helpful because this is something that I thought was gone but seems to be re-emerging When we talk about the Exodus, it can serve as a lens through which we see our own salvation, right? We understand in the Exodus story, God saved his people from enslavement. He delivered them and led them to the promised land. And we can see a correlation between our enslavement to sin, God's deliverance of that, uh, and taking us to our ultimate promised land or the true promised land. And I think that that is helpful and good, and Scripture does that. There's several references to the Exodus in the New Covenant that help us to see that it is a picture of that great salvation. Where it becomes problematic, and what I've seen reemerging recently, is when the Exodus story is turned into a hermeneutic by which all of the Christian life is interpreted. This is called liberation theology. And again, I thought it was gone, but it has shown back up. And liberation theology, in a nutshell, teaches that our greatest problem is being delivered by, from our oppressors in this life. That, that's our greatest problem. And you can understand how that is really just a, uh, an attempt to s- synchronize Christianity with Marxism. Uh, but, but here's the thing. As Christians, we're against injustice and oppression. We should stand against injustice and oppression. But as believers, we understand that's not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem are not the experiences that we face in this life. Our greatest problem is our sin. We can't fix our sin. We can, unbelievers can, deliver people from oppressors. They can remove systems of tyranny and injustice, and history is full of those stories. And again, we can support that and be a part of that. But that isn't our greatest problem. Because if you're delivered from your earthly oppressors and you're not delivered from your sins, your life is wasted. It's ruined. It's over. If you think of the Exodus story, the Passover lamb, that blood that was painted on the doorposts that served to deliver the firstborn from death, what happened to all those firstborn? They died. They didn't die then. They were delivered from death, but they ultimately died. It was a type or a symbol of the true Passover lamb who would one day come, Christ Jesus, our Passover lamb, who died and was sacrificed for our sins that we might live. And so I mention that to help us understand that looking through the lens of the Exodus is helpful. Don't swing the pendulum so far that you join in those who would paint it as Uh, some kind of hermeneutic by which all of life is interpreted. Now, the literal exodus by which God delivered his people from Egypt and led them to the promised land, uh, here is a backdrop. And that deliverance uh, then serves to uh, solve uh, uh, our ultimate problem, right? I mean, in the sense of it points to Christ, the Passover lamb, who would come to solve our greatest problem in atoning for our sins. Now, again, I I said it would be ideal to cover all seven. We just don't have time. So why are we taking the first four? Well, the first four parallel the first four trumpets in that they cover the same ground. Uh, The first four trumpets, if you remember, directed, we see God's wrath directed to the four segments of creation. 
earth, sea, fresh water, and sky. And we see those same things here in the first four bowls. And so that's how we're going to break it up. Now, some of the differences, though, I'll point out in the beginning here. In the trumpets, it was only one-third of the world that was affected by that judgment. So it was a partial judgment. We talked about that then, that we would see in, in the bowls a, a full judgment or a judgment that reaches all of the earth. So we see that growing intensity or that increase in God's judgment. Our, our minds, I think, when we read something like this, however, go to a singular one-time worldwide event. Because that's what the plain reading of the text sounds like. And so, and there are those who hold that position. But understand that when people say a plain reading of the text doesn't mean that a plain reading of the text uh, gives us the true meaning of it, uh, particularly when it comes to apocalyptic literature. And we've talked about this a number of times. Apocalyptic literature is a different literary style. So a plain reading of a narrative might give us the true understanding of, of that, but a plain reading of apocalyptic literature written in or told and written in symbols means that we have to understand what the symbols point to. And I, I, I realize I say that a lot, but I think it needs to be said a lot because many of us were brought up uh, with the understanding that these are literal, uh, singular um, events that have to be understood, and I want you to see that they don't necessarily have to be that. Uh, for the first thing is it's problematic to understand this as a singular uh, worldwide event. Not that God couldn't do it, but the purpose of it would be much more limited. If God sent a singular one-time event described in these bowls, it would only warn those people in that day and at that moment. It wouldn't serve to warn people throughout history. And yet revelation has been given to the church throughout history to serve as a warning and a call to repentance. So I think that lends itself to understand these bowls as an increasing in God's judgment over all the earth. That we see it as a progression. That until Christ returns, we're going to see continued increased signs of God's judgment as warnings that He is coming. There's still time to repent now. That's the point. There is still time to repent, but there is a judgment coming when mercy will be expired and the opportunity to repent will no longer be there. So the reason that we would look at it this way is because the bowls cover the same period of history as the seals and the trumpet. They show the progression and intensity, yes, but they tell the same story. William Hendrickson points out a number of reasons why. First, they describe many of the same events. We've talked about that, and we'll see that. Also, they end with the same ending, the final judgment, just as we would expect. We've seen it with the seals, we've seen it with the trumpets, and now we will see it with the bowls, that the seventh is the final judgment. One that is not maybe as obvious uh, but is still interesting to consider is the sign in heaven that we saw last week. We noted that it was the third sign in heaven in Revelation. And the third and final sign in heaven in Revelation. If we go back to the first sign in heaven in chapter 12, where does it take us? It takes us back to the birth of Christ. So in a sense, it's the beginning of the church age. The church age being between the first and second coming of Christ. And so in that sense, it connects these two as well. 
the judgments themselves fall on those who worship the beast and have his mark. It is an indication, again, that this occurs throughout the church age. In other words, the judgment isn't relegated just for the last day, right before Christ returns, as some might understand it. But those who have taken the mark of the beast, those who follow the beast, are all unbelievers throughout history. Uh, it's, it's today. Those who have rejected Christ, those who follow the beast, uh, that, that judgment is directed toward them. And then finally, Hendrickson points out that the bowls also deal with the same, many of the same characters. And we'll see this in the latter three bowls. We see the dragon return, the beasts, and also the false prophet. So hopefully that helps you understand then why we would see the correlation between seals, trumpets, and bowls and how they're connected. However we understand world events, however we understand what has happened or what will happen in the future, the point that I want to stress here is not that we have to figure out the details. I've said it this way, we don't, we don't interpret Revelation with our newspapers, or we don't have those anymore, news feeds, or we don't have newspapers much anymore, whatever. Our blogs are, that's not how we're interpreting Revelation. We interpret Revelation with Scripture. We understand it with Scripture. And so the point that we need to remember, the purpose of these judgments, is that they are designed to call people to repentance. That's the point. And so when we see a hurricane strike, we're not looking at it saying, well, that town or that state did something really bad and God's sending his judgment to them. It's rather, it is, a, it is an announcement that the sovereign one reigns over all creation and there is something much fiercer than a tornado, than a fire, than a hurricane, than a tsunami, than an earthquake, than a plague or a pandemic. There is something much more to fear than any of these things. This isn't your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is you need your sins atoned for. That's what you can't do for yourself. That's what you need deliverance from. That's how God's judgments serve uh, their role as we see them unfolded in Revelation. But they also remind us of what we've been saved from. And the hallmark of being reminded what you've been saved from is humility. I touched on this a little bit last week. So often we can turn this into an us and them thing. Oh, those evil people out there who have taken the mark of the beast and hell, you know, they're, they're headed to hell and trying to take our culture with it and all of that. Watch your attitude. And I'm speaking to me <laughs> as well. May we watch our attitudes because the hallmark of one who has been saved is humility. We are beggars showing other beggars where to find the crumbs. We didn't figure it out. Jesus found us. Jesus rescued us. Jesus saved us. And we did not earn it at all. The second thing is God's judgment reminds us that he will bring us safely home. Look in verse 1. The first thing John describes is a loud voice that instructs the angels to dispense the wrath of God. Because in the previous verse, chapter 15, verse 8, we saw that the glory of God fill his temple... Uh, it would make sense then, we're still in the temple here, the loud voice coming from it, that this would be God's voice, or at least his message, that the judgment is to come. It is brief and straightforward, and the angels immediately begin their task. The first one pours his bowl on the earth, resulting in a plague of sores on those who worship the beast and bore his mark. 
This takes us back to the sixth plague in Egypt. It was the plague of boils. If you remember from your childhood Sunday school classes, if you were uh, in church as a child, uh, I don't ever remember the order. I have to always go back. This week I had my Bible open to Exodus almost as much to Revelation as I was flipping back and forth to remember the order of the plagues. Uh, the plagues in Egypt were literal. They, they literally happened. People experienced this. The Egyptians did. Uh, and this prophecy could be a prophecy of literal sores to come. But it isn't necessarily such. And I don't think that that's... I think that's a very small view of how this fulfillment would be. Uh, it becomes increasingly difficult to apply the same hermeneutic to the other bowls. We're going to see this particularly as we move on to the latter ones. And it's interesting, even those among the dispensational futurists who insist on a literal hermeneutic through all of this even take a symbolic interpretation on some of the latter bowls. And so I think it's at least we need to at least leave room that this is not a singular one-time worldwide event. Because of the way that John writes in this, this book, the symbols are designed to point to real things. That's, that's, that's the point. Uh, that God's judgment is real. Uh, we've seen it in history. We'll see it again. We're not suggesting that the book of Revelation is to be understood allegorically. An allegory is a story that we hear that teaches us some important truth, but it has really no truth in it. It's a, it's a, um, not a nursery rhyme, what am I, a fable, you know, a children's fable, right? It teaches us a, a good thing we need to know about life. That's not Revelation. Revelation is apocalyptic literature and it uses symbols that point to very real things. So we need to understand what the symbols are in order to understand what they point to. In the same way that we would think of the Exodus as a symbol of our ultimate deliverance. We understand that we've been saved from enslavement and power of sin. We're going to be delivered to the true and final promised land. But we don't have to walk through a wilderness except symbolically in this life. We don't have to walk through a parted sea in order to uh, experience the ultimate promised land and the deliverance. And so in the same way, we can under the, understand that symbols point to things, things that are real. They don't have to be understood literally. So the boils, what do they point to? Well, it's human suffering. There's no question that this is painting a picture of human suffering. But human suffering can come from many things, certainly uh, physical affliction, but also things like disease and pestilence. Notice that the, the bowl is poured out into the earth. And where, what do we get from the earth? Well, a lot of our food comes from the earth. Uh, our, we get our, our sustenance. We, we get uh, our livelihood from the earth or much of it. And so the picture here is not just a f- physical suffering, but it could also include famine and disease. In verse 2, we also see the plague falls on the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Uh, again, could God do this? Yes, but it becomes difficult to understand that it was, this would happen in this way, that there would be an epidemic, say, of sores that would only fall on unbelievers and not Christians. I mean, it certainly would be one way to tell if it was sores that you could say, oh, you're not a Christian. No, you don't. You know, you, you've got the sores. You know? uh, we haven't seen an event like that. Um, and it's not saying that that couldn't be. A, the futurist holds that this is a singular one-time future event, uh, but I don't think that... At, I think it's just too small of a view to really understand what's being described here. Instead, we've talked about the fact that Christians suffer alongside non-Christians through disasters, uh, through pandemics. <laughs> uh, we, we experience many of the same things, but we understand that while we, we talk about the pandemic, it's worldwide. 
What's it a judgment of? I mean, we could guess. God hasn't told us. So I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to tell you definitively what it's for. But I can tell you it is a result of sin in the world, and it reflects the judgment of God, and it is a warning. It is a warning that God is going to return in judgment, and there's something much greater than a pandemic that we need to worry about and be delivered from, and that is our sins. And so it's then a reminder to us who are believers what we have been saved from, that we will be brought safely home, and it's used as a process to sanctify us. Folks, when, when life is good, when everything's safe and comfortable, our, our faith becomes really kind of just weak. But when we experience and we suffer that refining work that is judgment toward those or a pointing to judgment as well toward those of an ultimate judgments to come, God, God's powerful enough to take that and use that to refine us and to strengthen us. And doesn't he do that? Look in verse 3. The second bowl is poured into the sea. The waters become like blood and everything in the sea dies. It's an awful picture Much of the food source would have come from the sea. Much of the economic means for many societies comes from the ocean. All of this is brought to a halt. The picture is they don't even want to go near the ocean because it stinks. It is a cesspool of death. That's the picture that is painted here. Now, our minds are taken back to when, uh, in the first plague, the Nile was turned to blood in Egypt. What would this do? This would end all maritime trade. This would drive the food sources we, we mentioned. It would also uh, put a stop to all naval military activities. Uh, ships couldn't go to sea, couldn't defend or take on the offensive. And so the image becomes that of disasters against food and trade and defense. And we've seen from our history books that any one of these things are enough to bring a society to ruin. If you put all three things together, it would certainly lead to a society's demise. The third angel pours his bowl out on the rivers in springs of water, and they too become like blood. Um, this is, uh, we can take many of the same correlations. It's the same picture. It's a, it's a, the, the food source dies. Uh, maritime trade on the rivers and streams would end. Uh, the, the only thing in addition that we would add is that this would dry up the drinking water. So this is a real threat to, to daily life. This plague represents a halt to, to the things that we take for granted, clean drinking water. It's a ruin of all life. The fourth bowl in verse 8 is poured out on the sun, and instead of it going dark, partially dark as we saw in the trumpet, or what we saw in the plague in the Exodus story, the ninth plague in the Exodus story, here the opposite happens, and the sun is allowed to unleash its heat. It's described as fierce, as a scorching fire. Of course, we can understand how this would affect all of life. It would make it very difficult to do anything or to accomplish anything. As we look in the Old Testament for other references, we see a number of places where cosmic judgment is portrayed in this way, and it's done so symbolically. Uh, I mentioned uh, Jeremiah 15.9, Amos 8.9, Deuteronomy 32.24. That one specifically speaks of the consequence of disobedience as being uh, the people being consumed by a burning heat. And so we see that pattern in Scripture already. But the point to take home here is not that whether it's a cosmic event or not, whether the, this is a, some kind of allusion to war or the, uh, the heat of tyrannical rule that certain leaders bring, the point is, is that God's judgment is being revealed against all ungodliness. That's what Romans tells us. And the point is to bring about repentance. But notice in verse 9, it does the opposite. They did not repent and give him glory. 
And that pattern continues in the next bowl, as we'll see next week as well. Now, I want to jump back just briefly to the song that I skipped over, this song that's... Uh, uh, we've seen this happen in John. It's like he, he stops to remind us of the hope that we have. Uh, he stops in the middle of something to give praise to God, and he does that here in verses 5 to 7 as well. It's one of the angels who sings this song of praise. He's joined by the voices from the altar. We recognize anytime voices coming from the altar, that's the saints, the voice of the saints. They are described early in Revelation as being under the altar. So here, uh, believers who have died in Christ are pictured joining in that song. The song is similar to the song that we saw in the introduction. It praises God for His justice, for His holiness. But here it expands upon the holiness of God to include the avenging of those whose blood has been shed by these rebels. It is the language of an eye for an eye. They have shed the blood of saints. You have given them blood to drink. Again, Christians sometimes want to avoid this or or suggest that the wrath of God or the judgment of God is an Old Testament idea. If you ever hear that, that's that's faulty. (laughs) The judgment of God is also in the New Testament. I would argue that the judgment of God is the greatest in the New Testament in the account of the cross because there God's judgment fell on Christ for us. Some may say that, you know, we, we need to only listen to the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus spoke of turning the other cheek and loving our enemies. I won't go into that other than to say two things. One, the judgment of God is in the Sermon on the Mount. Reread it. It's there. Uh, But two, we're not God. We're His creation. And we are sinners saved by grace at that. So we are to turn the other cheek. We, you know, we we are not to take uh, uh, out vengeance. We are to love our enemies. We're not holy. We're not the judge. But do note that God is holy and altogether righteous and good and our Creator and judgment and vengeance are His and rightfully so because of who He is. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I mentioned the voices from the altar. They join in with the song. They, they, they sing, just and true, or true and just are your judgments. These are the saints who have died in the Lord. That's the picture that we have from heaven. There's more that could be said on that, but for the sake of time, let me just close by saying this. I ask you to imagine losing everything. Um, I, I don't do that often because I realize it, it can be kind of cheesy, but I, I, just, I want you to think through the implications. I realize illustrations are often cheesy. But think through the implications of something like that happening, where it's just a, just a blatant injustice. You have no explanation, but, but not, only are you, not only are you a victim of such an injustice, you lose your voice in the process, where you can't even stand up for yourself. You can't do anything. It's as if you have been erased. Now, I want you to think of someone who would come along and right all of that wrong, to restore all that has been taken from you. For the point of the illustration, if someone were to come in and deliver us, a righteous judge who has the power and the wisdom and the goodness to give back to us all that had been stolen, how would we feel? Of course, we would would feel incredible to have it all recovered, to see wrongdoers held accountable, to discover that we now have our possessions, that we have our voice, that we have the power that we had, and our dignity is restored. But you see, Christ came to do so much more than that silly illustration could ever convey. 
We were His enemies. We were at enmity with Him. We were doing the very things that displease Him. And yet, in His mercy, He sent His Son to lay down His life in our place, to satisfy the righteous requirement of the law that we had broken and could never meet. We couldn't keep it. He did all of this out of His great love for us, and in doing so, restored us to the dignity that was scarred by our sinning. The honor and worth of being created in His image, though marred by our many sins, is being renewed now through His power at work within us. Our names have been changed. We now bear His name. Our status has been upgraded so that we are now sons and daughters of the King. All the judgment that we deserved has been laid upon Christ, and we are now set free to live as unjudged. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free now to obey. We are free now to love unconditionally. Free to lavish grace upon others. Free to show mercy in lives of sacrifice. All of this we are free to do to live and give glory to the one who saved us and bought us back from sin and death. And in doing so, we become the fragrant aroma of the gospel by which we have been saved so that others might see and put their trust in Him. Folks, we have not been redeemed so that we can live complacent lives and collect stuff and avoid inconvenience and discomfort at every turn. We have been saved by His grace for our good and His glory to see and to show the glorious inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. And even in our weakness... His strength is manifest to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have been saved to herald the good news in how we live the days that we have been given. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but instead on a stand that gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we see your judgment evidenced in history, in our own day, and certainly as we see in the future, may we see in it your great love as well. That not only are you keeping things to the holy standard by, because of who you are, but you're also accomplishing something that is beyond our comprehension. It is immeasurable in the grace that you have shown to us in Christ Jesus in demonstrating your love through your wrath. Would you help us to get that, understand it? And then realize such a great salvation that is ours so that we don't fritter our life away Chasing the same things that the world says, oh, you need this and oh, you need that to be happy. Would you help us to see purpose in our lives? That the days that you have given us are something to be treasured and stewarded well. So Lord, help us to live as lights in a dark world. To shine the glory of Christ that others might see and give glory to you. Lord, That's going to look different in all of our lives. 
Would you guard us against taking what you have directed and guided each of us to do and how we live our lives and turning it into some kind of self-righteous standard by which we hold other people in contempt? Guard our hearts against that. Help us to be humbled by the great salvation that is ours. Lord, and then in that humility, live true and meaningful lives of sinners saved by grace so that we might be the beggars who show other beggars where to find the food. Lord, let your glory shine through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.